Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, November 21st. Hope that you are doing well. This week, we continue our look at the Thessalonians. This week, we begin with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. So reading from the ESV version. I, Paul, or Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for, for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from the heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should be greatly encouraged that Paul had to write a second letter to the Thessalonians to explain his first letter to them. You see, Paul's second letter was written within a few months of the first, and it and in it he seeks to make clear what was still unclear to the Thessalonians, and to be frank, to what is still unclear to us. Paul was still in the city of Corinth when he wrote this second letter. The year was 50 or 51 AD. Timothy had been sent to Thessalonica to see how things were going in the church there. On his return to Corinth, he had reported to Paul that the Thessalonian Christians were standing steadfast against tribulation. Paul had written the first letter to praise and encourage them in that, but now some further word had come from Thessalonica. We don't really know, but perhaps in a, a letter or a traveler's report, and Paul had learned that there was still a great deal of confusion in the church about the coming of the Lord. Some apparently had also protested that Paul's words of praise in his first letter were not really deserved. So Paul writes back, and he writes back to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from the God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, a, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions which you are enduring. 
So the opening two verses are the standard formula of greeting for first century letters. We, we open our letters, those that still write letters today, by saying, dear so-and-so, even though we may never have met the person whom we are writing. But Paul's opening greeting is the same as in the first letter, except for one thing. Here Paul repeats twice the words, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase puts stress on the source of a believer's strength and endurance in times of pressure, and it will come from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are also difficult days. Some of us are going through tough times. Some of us may be struggling even this morning. And so we want to emphasize what Paul underscores. That is the main, that is the that is that the Christian's resource is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The words of that great hymn say so as well. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That's also what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian believers. Next, Paul defends his previous words of praise for the Thessalonians' vitality, for their spiritual growth by saying, hey, we're bound to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is fitting. He, here he declares that the words which he had addressed to them in the first letter were not based on just courtesy, but they were based on fact. He recognizes that though the Thessalonian church is under great pressure, their faith is growing, their love's increasing, and those are the marks of, of a basic healthy church. And that's why Paul boasted about the Thessalonians to other churches. But there is something missing here. In the first letter, Paul speaks of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. And here he refers to their faith and their love, but he doesn't say a word about their hope. And I think that indicates the problem that this letter was written to correct. You see, Paul had learned that they are still confused and uncertain about the coming of the Lord. Their hope is not clear. It is possible that some believers do not have a clear view of what we're waiting for. And Paul writes to correct that in this, he, he writes to correct that in this letter. He knows that if these believers do not have hope, it will ultimately undermine their work of faith and their labor of love. History shows that over and over. When hope is lost, faith and love are soon lost as well. The second division of this opening chapter gives both encouragement and warning. Paul has already referred to their patience and endurance and, and persecutions and afflictions, and now he goes on to comment that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God deems it just to repay you with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted. Now, we don't know exactly how they suffered. Some, some had probably been arrested, they, perhaps thrown in jail, beaten. Perhaps their homes had been confiscated. Maybe heavy fines had been levied against them or, or the normal privileges of citizenship had been denied and revoked. And in all likelihood, they were undergoing the same kind of trials as Christians today who are living under persecution. But whatever form that persecution took, Paul says, and we can't miss this, that their endurance in the face of tremendous pressure was evidence that God was at work in them. You see, we cannot endure, we can't hang in there 
unless we are being strengthened by the Spirit of God. That's painfully obvious on so many sides today. People who are put under pressure give up very easily unless something is strengthening them. But the Thessalonians were enduring, and that, Paul says, was evidence of God's work among them. And he goes on to point out three things about their suffering. First of all, about their suffering, God was using it to prepare them for the kingdom reign that they would shortly share with him. He was making them worthy of the kingdom of God. Actually, a better translation is revealing that you are worthy. You see, God is revealing by their endurance and suffering that they are worthy of the kingdom of God, having been made worthy by faith in Jesus Christ. And the fact that they could stand up under pressure was evidence that they had been truly put into the kingdom of the son of God's love and had taken out of the kingdom of the darkness of Satan. What an amazing word that is, especially for, for, for us today. If we're holding out against the pressures to which we're exposed, it's, it's evidence that God is at work in our life. Secondly, God was using their suffering to reveal the condemnation of the world. He, he's going to afflict the ones who afflict them. Hebrews 11 is the record of the great heroes of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Sarah, and other Old Testament worthies. But there's another group also whose names are not given. And here is what is said about them. Others suffered mocking and scourging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then he adds this word, of whom the world was not worthy. Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38. You see, God's standard of value is quite different than the world's. We may not be, be anyone in the eyes of the world, but if, we are standing, if we're standing in our faith, in our faith in Christ, in the face of the trials and struggles, we are someone in the eyes of God. And at the revealing of Jesus, that appraisal is going to become evident to all. So Paul assures the Thessalonians that God is going to basically even the score. God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest with us, you who are afflicted. God has not forgotten their terrible deeds. He will afflict the ones who afflict God's people and bring rest to his own. That's, that's, a, that's a hard teaching, but, but I like that word rest. And the, the word is really relief in the Greek. It um, anison. What do we do when we have a headache? We, we may take an anison and get relief. That's an old, an old medicine. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's, that's what this is describing. God will bring a great sense of relief. So how do we spell relief? Well, it's not roll aids or anison, but it's Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. When Jesus comes, there will be relief visible on a worldwide scale. Not one injustice, not one humiliation, not one act of pain or torture will ever be forgotten. God is telling us the same thing here. He will bring affliction on those who afflict and rest and relief to those afflicted. Well, when will that be? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus— 
They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Second Thessalonians 1, that's verse 7 through 10. This event is the climax of the whole series of events which Scripture calls the parousia, the presence of Jesus. The first letter, Thessalonians, makes reference to the initial, to the beginning event of that series. And these words from chapter 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's First Thessalonians four sixteen through seventeen. That introduces, that begins the parousia. Jesus comes suddenly, like a thief in the night, and removes the treasure from the earth, but he does not take those believers off to heaven. We know from this and other scriptures that that Jesus will remain on earth with his transformed people, but he will be invisible behind the scenes a lot like he was during the 40 days following his resurrection. He will be directing the events that are taking place on the earth during the great tribulation. Then after the tribulation, he will manifest himself, unveil himself in open glory and flaming fire, as it says here, accompanied by his angels of power to judge the world and begin his earthly reign of a thousand years. This agrees exactly with Jesus' own words uttered on the Mount of Olives very shortly before his crucifixion, as is told in Matthew, Matthew 24, 29 through 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That occurs after the tribulation, and that's what Paul is describing here. This is also what John saw as he writes in the first chapter of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, everyone who is who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That's Revelation 1, verse 7. These all refer to the same event. And here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is describing two results that will take place at that time. First, the judgment of the rebels of earth. And second, the presentation in glory of the believers in the, in the Lord Jesus. This, by the way, is... That same time of that, that event that is, that is the same time of that event that is described in Matthew 25 as the great judgment of the sheep and the goats. First will come the judgment. Paul puts it very plainly. Our Lord will come inflicting vengeance on two classes of people, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Notice carefully the two classes. Class one is the millions who never have heard of Jesus. And I suppose there's no question asked of people who, who teach the scripture more frequently than what happens to those who have never hear, who have never heard, who never hear. Here's the answer. 
They'll suffer the vengeance of the Lord. Well, many of us are asking them, well, why? If they've never heard the gospel, how can God justly judge them? And well, the answer is because they have rejected the revelation of God in nature. You see, no one lives in total ignorance of God. God is revealing himself all the time, both in our own human nature and in the world of nature around. This is, this is clearly described in Paul's letter to the Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His invisible nature, namely his in eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived <clears throat> in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Now we have difficulty. I have difficulty with that concept. There's something in us that rejects the thought of punishment. Like children, we do not like the idea of having to face the consequences of our own choices. But that is what Paul is talking about here. God, God has revealed himself clearly to everyone that he is God. He is in charge of the world. Every single force at work in the universe comes from his hand and is under his control. Anyone who thinks of the strange and wonderful workings of our own body is aware that they did not put that marvelous machinery together. We know that. An intelligent being has done this. Yet the thrust of society is to eliminate God from his own creation, to give no recognition to the fact that he's behind all things. Certainly there is no attempt to be thankful to him, and that's why Paul levels this charge against the whole world in Romans. And it's not merely primitive people groups who may fail to recognize God or to be thankful to him. People all up and down the sophisticated state of North Carolina are doing this too. There may be some here this morning who have not recognized the God who is there. This does not mean that when they do recognize there is a God that they are automatically redeemed. It still remains true that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus himself said that. But what it does mean is that if we recognize the revelation of God in nature and begin to seek him, look for him, God himself will take the responsibility to see that they hear of Jesus. The second category are those who have heard the gospel, but have rejected it and thereby turned their backs on an offer of grace. Now, there are millions like that all over the earth. They have heard that if they surrender their, own, their lives to Jesus, if they recognize that they are not their own, that they've been bought with a price, that they, are, they will be redeemed, that, that they will be changed, they will be saved. But they have not done that. They've heard, but then they've turned their backs and walked away time and time again. They have never surrendered their will to the will of Jesus. And this is what Paul is describing. What happens to them? Well, Paul says they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Exclusion, banishment, separation, but not annihilation. Some claim that these verses mean is, is that when people die, their existence also ends, but they go out like the light of a candle and, and they are no more. But scripture never describes it in those terms. It speaks here of eternal destruction. The word is ruin, the loss of everything that makes life worthwhile, the thrashing of life. What we're talking about, again, not a popular thing to mention, but is hell. C.S. Lewis 
has put it well. In hell, everybody will be at an infinite distance from everybody else. Loneliness and emptiness. Jude describes those in hell as wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Those are very sobering words. Turning one's back on God's offer of grace is the answer of Scripture. God does not want anyone to perish like that. He says so. And he's gone through terrible agony to keep that from happening. But no matter how much we dislike passages like this, two truths always emerge. First of all, it is justice that is being carried out, not meanness, not cruelty, but justice on God's part. It is his righteous reaction to, co- to the cosmic treason of man. That is what turning our back on Jesus means, treason against the king of the universe. So first of all, it is justice, it's not meanness, and secondly, it's self-chosen. It is what those involved have always wanted, freedom from God. Everything in their life has said, I don't want God messing up my plans and telling me what to do. And there comes a time where man says to God, your will be done, or else God says to man, your will be done. What we want is what we get. Now, I don't like preaching like that, but that is reality. And scripture confronts us with reality at every turn. But another result is given in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That last part of that verse, because our testimony to you was believed, is simply Paul's way of expounding on the little word all, A-L-L, all who have believed. In fact, the New International Version rendered says it this way, this includes you because you believed our testimony. That's what Paul means. God will not glorify us because we have lived a good, decent life or anything like that. Scripture never puts it on that basis. But rather, our glorification is based on the fact that we have believed that another did something for us. Another one died in our place, and God has honored the death of that other to such a degree that he, he offers to accept us, accept me with my terrible record of failure and defeat, and to offer to us eternity of delight and glory with him. That's what Paul is, is putting out here. He describes the glory of Jesus that will be seen in his saints and the way that cause and and the way they cause people to marvel at what God has done in human lives. It's not Jesus himself and his glory that's described, but the saints reflecting the glory of Jesus. That's what causes the whole universe to marvel. That's what Paul is describing in this amazing picture. John says in, in his first letter, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. First John 3, chapter 3, verse 2. That's what Paul calls in chapter 8 of Romans, the day of the manifestation of the sons of God. Romans eight nineteen. When the curtain is lifted on what God has been doing with his people through all these years and how he has been changing them inside, at the last, at last the world will see what God has been accomplishing. There's a 
there is a glory, a joy that only the redeemed know. That marvelous manifestation of the grace and glory of God will be evident to those who have been changed by his grace. That is what this day is describing. And that invitation is given to all. But it's an invitation. In this last section, Paul prays for the Thessalonians and for us in these words. To this end, we always pray for you that that our God may make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. Paul, Paul's saying, hey, hold fast, keep steady, keep faithful, remain faithful. We have the resolve to do so in the desire given to us by the Holy Spirit. We have the faith to do so in the basis of the fact revealed in the Scripture. And we have the power to do so since God himself dwells, lives, abides in us. All this according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Granted that it may, it's going to be hard sometimes, maybe all the time. Some of us are going through difficult times. It's not easy to stand for Jesus in our family when perhaps some members are against us, when maybe you're the only believer in your family. It's not easy to be loving uh, and, and warm toward those who are cruel and caustic toward us, whether that be at work or at school, in our apartment building, in our own homes. This is and can be a very tough brutal and ruthless place to be this world scripture faces that scripture acknowledges that but what we are constantly reminded of is that the lord jesus is now being glorified when we hold steady when we don't give up when we do not allow ourselves to fall into evil practices but are able to say no and walk away from them that's when jesus is being glorified paul says and that's what he prays. And, says Paul, we are also being glorified. You see, interchanges are taking place in our life that we can't, we can't even see. Others can see them better than we can. But there are changes taking place. And when Jesus shows, shows us off before the whole world at the time of, his, of the unveiling of his presence, that glory that has been shaping in us is going to blaze forth to such a degree that it will make the whole universe gasp. What a hope. There is our hope. That is our motivation to keep on keeping on. Amen. And God bless.